Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome back Oscar-nominated cartoonist and animator Graham Annabel. Thanks for joining us again, folks. It's episode 69, dudes. How very non-heinous. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by fellow animation industry darling Steve Henderson. How's it going? I'm fine, darling. How are you? Plodding along. Plodding along. I've got a week off. I've been working on what's probably the most boring job in my freelance animation career, and I did it initially for, like, some Christmas cash. And then it got stalled for like a month and a half. So now that I don't need the Christmas cash, I'm still sort of obliged to finish it. So that's what I've been doing the last little while. So compared to that, nothing is quite exciting. <laughs> so yeah, so I get a little bit of respite before it all um, kicks off again at the end of the week. So I'm uh, working my way ever gradually through a, a new film, which uh, will hopefully be fun when it's done. Exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing Clemen Throw 2. Yeah, well, I feel like it has spin-off potential. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not a direct sequel, but certainly uh, several series. Maybe a feature, you know, involving one of the uh, peripheral characters. We'll see. We're, I'm in discussions. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, how are you doing? What have you been up to? Gallivanting about the place, I see. Certainly have, yeah. Uh, I've been filling our Instagram with uh, my trip to Anima, and I'm going to be doing a little something on the site as well uh which uh, covers it what a what a fantastic festival all the way over in belgium never been before and uh, they made me feel most welcome uh going around and uh, seeing some fantastic animation work over there it strikes me as an accommodating nation it really is yeah and chips are the main food source so oh, not waffles well you can have chips on your waffles you know sweet yeah but yeah, the Anima Festival, uh, I would recommend to absolutely anyone and everyone. Let me guess what you're most happy about, though, <laughs> animation industry-wise. Them Oscar results. Oh, they filled my heart with so much joy. <laughs> and the thing is, every year, I think I, I sort of will myself and feel, you know, I, I, I realise it's just a load of nonsense and it, it doesn't matter. But the fact that there's so much talk about it we're we're adding to that talk. Obviously, we're part of the problem. But <laughs> I'd like to think of us as chief contributors to the problem. <laughs> yeah, but the fact that nothing changes—it just every single year—it's just the same story. If the Oscars are supposed to be the pinnacle of animation achievement, why is a Disney animal film being awarded? Because it's not 1930 anymore. Maybe they'll surprise us. I mean, what won the feature category? Zootropolis. Oh, did that have animals in it? It had a few animals in it, yeah, yeah. It had a fair few animals in it, yeah. And the VFX category, the uh, live action, which completely animated, Jungle Book, a film with talking animals in it. Well, they're, uh, they're reliably consistent. Mm. There was a bit of consternation on the old social media channels. I think mm. mostly about the feature of uh, Zootropolis or Zootopia or Zoomania. Zoo gives a shit at this point. <laughs> I I mean, did you like the film? We did talk about it, I think. I, yeah, I, there's nothing that has one that I didn't like. I'm just saying that the way that the Oscars promote these films shows a disregard for the full breadth of animation and what animation is capable of. Yeah. 
I mean, if you go into a film like that, as I did, which was sort of pretty blind because people had made a point of saying, don't watch the trailer because it spoils the best bits. Mm. And in that sense, being taken along with it, it was fun. And I do think it succeeds as light entertainment. Mm-hmm. And if we are judging films on universal accessibility, which I guess at this point, let's be honest, that's really what it all comes down to. Then you can't say it was given an Oscar for no reason, but it does go against what I think the Oscars would like to be considered as something a little bit more celebratory of cultural value. And what I did find a little aggravating were these cloying justifications people were posting about how Zootopia actually was the most culturally valuable film of those nominated. It's telling the harder truths about society. (laughs) Steve, I don't know if you knew this, but apparently racial profiling is a bad thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll write that one down. The little bunny wunny and the foxy woxy really stuck it to the manny wanny there. (laughs) If you're a kid and your first introduction to basic concepts like that, there's some Disney animal metaphor that you probably won't even get until you're older, mm. then maybe there's a bigger problem. Like, maybe <laughs> maybe these kids' parents should get their shit together. I don't know. I, I, but I, I think the film is... People have looked at it, into it as racial profiling. Or, but it is... It, you can't look at it like that. It is only a film about the film. So it's about predators and prey. If you apply racial profiling to that then you're saying that through the laws of the film that whatever section of Zootopia you apply whatever race you apply to it so if you're saying that white people are the prey in the film then you're saying that whoever else you're profiling is naturally evil and will naturally want to attack the prey uh well there you go i mean i I liked i liked the funny sloth yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i liked the funny animals doing yoga with you know with their legs wide apart you know yeah that's awkward you know it's i like these disney movies with with richmore i love richmore's work uh wreck it ralph was fantastic he directed and was a huge part of the early futurama stuff and directed the best futurama episode Roswell ends well, which I might have said on this podcast before. So I'm a big fan of his stuff. And he really injects a nice, uh, or has been injecting a nice fresh face to Disney animated features. So you can have your princess films, you can have those films alongside something with a bit more, a bit more fun to them. Was the Roswell one the one where he goes back in time? And shags his grandma. That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. It was. So, uh, until next year, shall we close the Oscars book, Ben? The, the Book of Whinge. And, uh, <laughs> the Book of Whinge. <laughs> just... That should be what this podcast is called. <laughs> uh, I mean, another... Congratulations to... I can't say it. I can't... I can't... <laughs> Congratulations to all the winners. Congratulations, Disney. You're going to make it after all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well done, Disney. Uh, finally, the recognition you deserve. What else are Disney up to these days? Uh, they're, they're making some headlines, I've, I've seen. They certainly are. Um, well, <laughs> talking about talking Disney animal films, I'm going to contradict myself here and say I was pleasantly surprised by the arrival of the DuckTales trailer. Ah, yes. That's not going to win any Oscars, so it's fine. It's not part of the the Book of Whinge. It's part of something else. The pamphlet of... Um... Mild amusement. Sure. <laughs> Were you very invested in the original DuckTales and... 
I, I, I certainly was as a kid. Mm. There was a certain golden age, wasn't there, of uh, Saturday morning kids' TV. Uh, and you had DuckTales and Chip and Dale and Darkwing Duck and all those kind of, you know, Disney TV uh, animated sitcom style adventures. It was great. Were you? Eh. <laughs> I, yeah, I liked it. I think because there was quite a lot of it, it all kind of clumped together a bit. My perception was like, oh, you know, oh, this is on. That was it. Wasn't like appointment television. I don't think for me. <laughs> I mean, I I watched a lot of shitty shows, and I've written about some of them on Squiggly. And at the time, you kind of suspect, you know, I think this might be a piece of shit. <laughs> but I'm I'm watching it anyway, huh? Okay, let's see where this goes. The the animated spinoff series of the musical Little Shop of Horrors. Which guess why no one who is listening has ever heard of that? Because it's balls. <laughs> Oh, but actually, it's someone found a bunch of them and has put them online. If you want to see a shitty TV show spun off from something, check that out, because that is like assault. It's an insult to animation. <laughs> it's an insult to musical theater. It's an insult to Rick Moranis. <laughs> it's like every, oh, it's, um, That's the biggest insult of all. You know how like the plot in the film is like an R&B crooner? Yeah. Uh, in the show, he's like a down-with-the-kids rapping plot. Ugh. <laughs> it's like the... The Fresh Prince of Plotville. <laughs> anyway, check it out before YouTube yanks them down. So that was the highbrow stuff I was looking at when I was a kid. <laughs> I think I saw like three episodes, but like it lingers, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. What the f*** was that about? <laughs> I So yeah, I, I whenever there was like quality stuff on TV, and it was the same, I think, with live action, I kind of like felt like, oh, that's what the standard is. Let's check out the people who aren't making as much of an effort. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear that, generally speaking, people are pretty happy with how this new iteration is uh, coming together. Mm. A bit like uh, Danger Mouse a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Left a lot of people quite satisfied with the direction they were taking it. Managed to take a nostalgic look back, but add something new to it. And it's nice that the the new DuckTales seems to have taken the uh, original comic into consideration so you see there's a lot of the uh, like bende dots employed throughout the backgrounds and all that kind of stuff but yeah it looks good and david tennant as uh as scrooge mcduck uh, you can't have everything i guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, is he good he's good but he doesn't sound as old and crotchety as alan young did he sounds like yeah. david tennant doing his, his david tennant do you remember quack pack ben I don't think I do. <laughs> um, is it, it some kind of cult? Uh, it, it's a, it's the, the worst type of cult. It was um, the follow-up to DuckTales, and it was a teenage Huey, Dewey, and Louie living with uh, Donald Duck uh, and Daisy. Mm-hmm. And it was... Maybe I'd got a little bit too old for cartoons at that point, but it was the worst. But it does look uh, like the most 90s thing as well. Uh, if you give it a, a a little bit, just just image search Quack Pack and look at the look at the tood on there. Oh man, <laughs> that is edgy. <laughs> I mean, you know, Dewey's got his hat on backwards and he's got his arms crossed and his his eyelids are half closed and he's just asking for trouble, isn't he? It's great because they've grown up with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, these these ducks are hardcore. I don't know whether or not Scrooge McDuck's in it. I can't remember watching too much of it. But I bet he's in the first episode. Well, 
as like a I'm I'm passing on my my unruly nephews to you, Donald Duck. They've become too much of a handful. Do you like my Scottish accent, by the way? Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> the obligatory like appearance of the main character of the the show it's spun off, and then we never see him again. Well, I don't think he's even mentioned, so so it's presumed that he's dead because <laughs> he was old. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a. That's a blast from the past. And the, the kids in this <laughs> new one are sort of dressed up in a similar... Uh, they've updated the look, shall we say. It's odd when the spin-off just completely doesn't regard where it spun off from. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen... I don't really imagine it was on your radar at the time, but uh, the TV show Daria, mm. which came from Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. And I kind of dipped my toe into that because I loved Beavis and Butthead as a basically being Beavis and Butthead combined as a teenager myself. <laughs> it d- doesn't have the slightest reference back to Beavis and Butthead or the town or any of the other characters. Like, I don't think it's once mentioned. Yeah. And I think that they really wanted to distance themselves from it. <laughs> Which is odd, because it wasn't like it was a, an unpopular show. It was huge. But I guess they figured it wouldn't uh, stand a chance or be taken sort of seriously. And it's kind of a hard watch, to be honest, if you're a teenage boy. Uh, it's a bit like my so-called life, but like animated. <laughs> Bunch of teenagers being sort of like angsty, which, you know, you'd think, oh, perfect vehicle for animation. <laughs> I mean, to work on it would have been great because you never have to animate anything. They just sit around looking sullen. <laughs> Whereas Quack Pack, I imagine there's some pretty uh, dynamic, insert other buzzword here. Um, this is like the uh, itchy and scratchy and poochy show of the <laughs> Disney universe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it was a, uh, like, they did Goof Troop as well, which was the same thing. You've got these Disney characters like Donald Duck and Goofy. I mean, how old are they? 40, 50? They need to have some hip young kids with them so the audience can enjoy them. I mean, what do they do in their original cartoons? Go fishing? Who the f*** goes fishing nowadays? <laughs> what a bunch of losers. They should be rollerblading in tie-dye t-shirts. It's the 90s, dude. <laughs> So DuckTales is back, Ben, and we've got a lot to look forward to. Speaking of looking forward, the Beauty and the Beast uh, remake, which uh, looks to be the most successful family film ever in terms of box office, uh, has been courting controversy yet again, Ben. Oh, my. It's revealed that it's got a gay in it. What's that? It's a person of uh, the homosexual persuasion, which is causing much uh, aggravation. The, the uh, least surprising gay character in the entire Disney canon, by the way. Yes. Was it? How was it remotely a revelation that Lefeu <laughs> was in love with Gaston? That was never up for debate. That was never subtle. <laughs> <laughs> he has a love song in the f***ing film, basically. <laughs> You know how, like, in the last episode I was saying how, like, the animated version had some, like, amazing sequences? Yeah. Like, for me, the absolute best one is the Gaston song. Yeah. That was when we, like, studied in school, and, like, I'll, I'll go back to it and refer to it. The animation, the music, everything is bang on. And, you know, if you're serious about the craft of animation, it's worth, like, going through bits and bobs of it frame by frame. But it is, essentially, it, it's, it's, it's not delicately infused with a, a, a whiff of homoeroticism. He's in love with this guy. He's singing a song about his muscles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And his hairy chest. Spit on me, Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> Expectorate all over my face. <laughs> so I guess maybe they're more, ex- they're more explicitly stating 
what doesn't perhaps need to be stated in this version is that the uh, is that what I'm being led to believe? Yeah, and and people have been releasing press releases. Cinemas uh, have been releasing press releases saying there's no way that we're gonna uh, show this film. The Russian government has opted to give the film a 16 plus rating because because they don't want they don't yeah and they're calling for it to be banned. They don't want to show this in cinemas. Uh, hmm. And it's it's not just it's not just Russia. It's obviously clearly America as well. There are a few places, uh, including the uh, Henniger Driving Theatre, uh, who've released a statement on Facebook. Uh, when companies continually force their views on us, we need to take a stand. We all make choices, and I'm making mine. For those that do not know, Beauty and the Beast is premiering their first homosexual character. The producer also says, at the end of the movie, there will be a surprise for same-sex couples. If we cannot take our 11-year-old granddaughter and 8-year-old grandson to see the movie, then we have no business watching it. If I can't sit through a movie with God or Jesus sitting by me, then we have no business showing it. I mean, do they address the fact that it's a movie about a girl who wants to f*** a monster? (laughs) Because maybe God and Jesus might have something to say about that. Or is that is that in the back there? The uh, the Hermione will lie down with the werewolf. She's got a thing for bison's. That's uh, I'm not, we're not we're not here to judge Ben. We'd be as bad as them if we if we were to judge. And they say here we are first and foremost Christians, and we will not compromise on what the Bible teaches. Hmm. So I suppose they won't be eating crayfish or you know wearing more than two types of fabric. But all the kids who uh, you know who want to see it, they have to wait till they're sixteen in Russia. They're gonna be, uh, they're gonna be a little disappointed, I guess. It's gonna be contraband. <laughs> like when we were like, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, we were like, oh, you, someone has a CD-ROM with some pornography on it. <laughs> hell, passing it around the classes. With them, it's gonna be like, someone's got Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> it's shot from the inside of the cinema. You see people getting up to go to the loo, but you know, you you get to see most of the film. <laughs> you see everyone stampeding out during the gay scenes. No! <laughs> my eyes! My precious eyes! I mean, I'm amazed we can even find the strength to get out of bed in the morning. What with <laughs> Tim Minchin's hotly anticipated animated feature film being cancelled. Well, that's the, uh... I mean, we were on tenterhooks for that one. I, you, know, you know what? No one knew about it, clearly. But now, when you hear about the fact that it's been cancelled, I'm, I'm, I am disappointed. You don't think DreamWorks is going to hit the same note with Boss Baby? I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. Uh... Trolls Two, that's coming round the corner. That'll keep us. Well, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, you're right, Ben. We've got a lot to be giddy about. You know, maybe <laughs> Larrikins was one one little treat too many for us. Uh, you know, but yeah, when you see that that DreamWorks have been cancelling films like uh, Larrikins and greenlighting films like Trolls Two, which mm fine i'm sure it makes money and all that kind of stuff it keeps cancelling what appear to be unique productions and not productions that are a part of a um a franchise such as um boss baby that is based on a children's book captain underpants that's based on a children's book how to train your dragon that's based on a children's book trolls even is based on a franchise that they bought a toy line that they bought so dreamworks seem an incredibly cautious studio. So when original productions come across, like, do you remember Me and My Shadow mm-hmm. from years ago? That looked quite good. It was a CG yeah. film 
with uh, 2D uh, background characters animated. And I've seen a few tests from it, and it did look like something that I would have liked to have seen. And maybe it, it, it had a concept that would only last for a short film or a sequence in a film, but it did at least look unique. And now you hear larrikins from a talent such as Tim Minchin as has been cancelled. It, it, it doesn't send out a very good message, does it? It is more of a shame when it's something like Me and My Shadow or when Sony cancelled Popeye, when you have seen those glimpses of what could have been. I personally haven't seen anything visual about larrikins. Mm. So I don't know. Is there stuff out there? Were there like tests and stuff that came out? No, there's a few uh, sketches by Peter Desef, yeah. uh which look absolutely gorgeous simply because they're Peter Desev drawings. But he was the guy who, I believe he created uh, Scrat and Ice Age and all that kind of stuff. So he had a big hand right. in the original uh, stuff there. But it did sound like a fantastic production because you only have to look towards anything else Tim Minchin has touched and he turns it to gold. I mean, look at Matilda. Well, the one of my absolute favourites... Um... Storm. Storm. Mm. Yeah. That's just gorgeous in every respect, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe it's punishment for his stint on Californication, because that was pretty if I'm <laughs> going to be cruel. He did reveal in a, in a statement, Tim Minchin, his thoughts on the, uh, on the cancellation. There's been nothing official, really, on the way that this film has been shelved. Uh, but it sounds like he's had it pretty rough. Uh, I've recently been working in three different continents, missing my kids a lot, sleeping too little, and not playing the piano enough. And then a couple of days ago, the animated film, which I've dedicated the last four years of my life to, was shut down by new studio execs. Well, sad. We live to fight another day. Mm. DreamWorks do have what looks like an original feature coming up in 2019, which is Everest. Uh, which the only thing you've got on it is a magical yeti must return to his family. And it's directed by Tim Johnson, who directed uh, loads of DreamWorks stuff. Uh, But he made his start animating the 3D Simpsons, you know, when Homer went into the wall and it was CG. Yeah, so he made his start there. But he he directed uh, Home, uh, Over the Hedge, Ants, all that kind of stuff. Right on. Time will tell. <laughs> Any cheerier news? I don't know about cheerier. Uh, quite odd news, really. But uh, Kubo and the Two Strings director, uh, Travis Knight, is reportedly heading towards the Transformers films. <laughs> and he's going to be directing Bumblebee, which is a spin-off from Transformers. Jesus Christ, talk about failing upwards. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that one coming, Ben? I saw a return to his rap career coming before I saw that coming. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to be a, a very lucrative endeavor. Yeah. Good luck, Travis. From everything he talks about, what he loves about filmmaking, especially getting his hands dirty with the whole actual animation side of things, it seems like that's the kind of job he'd feel a bit, I don't know. You can't imagine him staring at a computer screen and saying, oh, move move his arm a little bit to the left. You imagine him like rolling his sleeves up and getting getting in front of a model and, and moving around. Maybe, maybe this might be made in stop motion. 
it won't, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'd probably go see a stop-motion Transformers film. Yeah. That could be fun. Yeah. Uh, Maybe he does just need, like, a a break from that after Kubo. Mm. Because that was insane. Like, if you look at um, all the B-roll and stuff, Mm. there's some in uh, our Lightbox video with him. And uh, there's plenty out there, generally, in in the world. But certainly, like, they, they were not doing anything in half measures. No. Sometimes maybe you just kind of need a bit of a break to do something. Something that, you know, requires a little less uh, <laughs> less work and diligence like a giant CG Transformers movie. <laughs> well, more power to them. Mm. It's interesting, though, because with uh, Travis Knight being the president and chief and king of Lyca, what what would happen? That is the, the question in the air. Uh, as to what would happen when when Travis Knight uh, leaves to to go to Hollywood to work on this uh, Transformers film, if indeed he does uh, go away to to work on this Transformers film, uh, what would happen to Leica? And I guess on this podcast goes on to talk about uh, that. So I'm teasing the answer to the question there, Ben. You see what I did there? So people have to listen to it. Ah, yeah. Graham Animal, I think we we have had on before. He was involved in Box Trolls quite heavily. He was the director, wasn't he? Or co-writer or it, something? He was big. the co-director with uh, Anthony Stacci, who we, yeah. we had on when uh, the Box Trolls were out. So, always nice to have people back on the old podcast. Well, it is when people do... When they're on the press junket tour, we they get a chance to talk about the film. So now Graham has a chance to talk about his own work. This is a guy who's been in the industry for, you know well over 20 years and has worked in games he's worked in uh, 2d stop motion cg so yeah he's been around for a while hmm. but he is well he is probably best known uh, for our listeners uh, as uh, the box trolls director but if you only know him as that i do urge you all to check out uh, grickle which is his own comic book which has been brought to life really uh, grickle being this world that he's created and these short films, uh, these very funny short films that he's created as well. Mm-hmm. And where can they find that? Uh, well, they could find it. Uh, I think the best place for them to, to start the search would be uh, Patreon. And if they go on patreon.com slash Grickle, they can find out more about Grickle, maybe donate, become a patron, and then they can make their way through to uh, Graham's YouTube channel from there. Yeah, so he started his career straight from uh, Sheridan College, uh, he worked on the Goofy movie. He worked uh, on some TV series over there. Then worked, went to work for uh, LucasArts. Then he started working on Grickle, which uh, showcased his uh, skills as a you know somebody who can tell a story using using images because it was a comic at that point. Which got him the job at Leica on Coraline, working as a storyboard artist. He would then uh, go on to be head of story on uh, the Box Trolls, and then uh, co-director of the Box Trolls. And if you go on our Vimeo channel, Ben, and by extension, the listening audience, and you find the Box Trolls video that we've got, the behind-the-scenes animatic uh, video that we've got, that is Graham's work. Good point of reference there. Oh, yes. I sold it all there, didn't I? Mm-hmm. I had sat down with uh, Graham uh, in Belgium at the Anima Festival, and here's what he had to say, Ben. It was really interesting to know of yourself as a as a um, director, as an artist, as a storyboard artist, as a comic artist, as a guy who's worked in video games, as a guy who's worked in every uh, mode of animation. 
where the hell do I start with questions for you? <laughs> I don't know, because I still think, and that's kind of been the point of my talk, is I'm not quite sure how I ended up here, but this is the path that ended up being taken. Uh, I mean, I've just, I feel like I've been lucky enough to just kind of follow my nose throughout my career. And uh, yeah, I look back on it now and I'm like, I, I don't think any of this made any sense, but I ended up <laughs> at Leica and uh, it's been, you know, now it's been for like the last 11 years and it's been fantastic there and hopefully that always keeps continuing and yeah, but it's been a weird patchwork of different mediums and different places. Excellent. Well, uh, you, you started off at, at Sheridan, at the, yeah. um, the, the, the college there. Yeah, in Toronto. Um, and then uh, began working uh, within the local area, is that how you yeah. set, set off as a yeah, student? Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, gosh, I don't even know if I should tell this story, but I end up always telling it. Um, when I, it was the third year of Sheridan is the last final year, and we have a big event called the third year screening, and that's where prospective employers will come view films and decide if they want to hire students and whatnot. And this was 1991, so <clears throat> the animation industry at that point certainly not booming just yet in terms of TV or film. So there was really just three studios that showed up to look at the student work, and it was Nelvana, which is sort of the big institution in Canada, Nelvana is, you know, the Canadian animation company that's just been there forever, does mostly television, and there was Phoenix Animation, which was sort of a newer, smaller studio that was starting in downtown Toronto, and then there was this company called Pixar, and there was these two guys that showed up from Pixar in, I still remember vividly, orange t-shirts, and it was John Lasseter and Pete Docter, and they watched the student screen. And at the end of the screening, they post a list in the third year class area. And it has Nelvana, Phoenix, Pixar. And they list students that they're interested in having them contact them, looking at portfolios, whatnot. And, you know, to, uh, not to discredit Nelvana at the time, but obviously they must have been hiring a lot. They pretty much had the class list underneath theirs. Phoenix had about maybe half the class listed. And then Pixar had maybe three four names and I happened to be one of the names on there so I was like huh I was like where are they from oh California Ooh, I don't know and then I looked them up and I was like oh they're the guys that did the tin toy that, that computer thing and I looked at, you know I just started thinking more about it I was like gosh you know I've got a really good apartment lined up for the summer in downtown Toronto and they're computer guys I don't want to do computer stuff I got into this to draw and so I never pursued it didn't call them didn't contact nothing and then kind of forgot about it and then within two years I was in Northern California working for LucasArts George Lucas's video game company and I was good friends with uh, another animator there David David Devan who's gone on to be you know one of the sort of main animators at Pixar anyway Dave Devan was roommates at the time with Doug Sweetland. And we were leaving work one night, and Dave's like, hey, we're going to go hang out with Doug tonight. Do you want to come along? I said, sure. But we got to go pick him up at his work. And I was like, oh, yeah, where's that? And he's like, oh, he works at Pixar. I was like, oh, that's that, uh, that's that computer company. <laughs> so we went over to Pixar in Point Richmond at the time. It's a little ragtag building that they had. 
and Doug wasn't ready to go yet. And Doug said, hey, do you guys want to see what I'm working on right now? Have a peek? And we said, sure. I didn't even know. And Dave said, yeah, they're working on a movie. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then Doug showed me his shot that he was doing. And it was like that moment in Toy Story where Woody is trying to get Buzz to come from Sid's house, I think, across that big, that big one. And Woody's doing this incredible, like, waving thing. I looked at it and I was like, oh my God. I, it, like, in that moment, I just realized the decision or the choice that I had sort of skipped on without having any clue of, like, you know, what. I always think about that moment. <laughs> But it is what it is. I've ended up where I've ended up. And Pixar's done just fine without me, so it's all good. Yeah, whatever happened to Pixar, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Those guys in the orange shirts, no one ever heard of them yeah, again. Yeah, I mean, really. Orange shirts. <laughs> uh, so funny. Excellent. Um, I don't suppose you, uh, that conversation came up when you, uh, when you were on the award circuit with Box Trolls. No, I didn't bring that one up. It's, it's a long story, <laughs> and I'm sure that was too long an answer for you, but... Uh, Excellent. But it is fun one to say because, yeah, just looking back on it now, you think, wow. <laughs> but uh, you, you mentioned they're working for um, for LucasArts mm-hmm. uh, as well on uh, Day of the Tentacle, was it, and uh, Monkey Island? I didn't touch Day of the Tentacle. When I showed up, uh, I got the job through a friend of a friend um, because the Toronto film uh, animation industry is real feast or famine. Mm-hmm. And it was in a particular famine part of it where I was thinking maybe I'll move to the West Coast and go to Vancouver for a while because Vancouver had a steadier TV industry going. But a friend of a friend called and said he'd just gotten hired at LucasArts down in California and they were super eager to hire more Canadian animators because I guess they were having a hard time pulling CalArts students to come all the way up from LA to San Francisco. Anyway, submitted a portfolio and thought I'd be there for maybe a year turned into well, I've been in, on the west coast in America now for 24 years uh, but I started working on Full Throttle Full Throttle was just towards the end of it so I was animating on that and uh, working on just shots on that and then I moved on to Steven Spielberg's The Dig the big sci-fi thing um, and then yeah, just I sort of avoided Star Wars for extraordinary amount of time because um, LucasArts did have so many other things going at that point but I did ultimately work on Obi-Wan for Xbox and Episode 3 uh, yeah I think those were maybe the only two Star Wars titles I worked on but yeah it was a great time are you, were you, are you not a massive fan of, of Star Wars is I am it? I mean, yeah. I'm, you know I'm the right generation I you know went to the theater in 1977 as a 8-7 year old and uh Absolutely love. I mean, just loved all things Star Wars. But I don't know. Working at LucasArts, I realized that I was nowhere near the level of Star Wars fan that existed out there. Like there were much higher levels of it, and I guess a little bit of a burnout from it. But I still love Star Wars. I mean, it's just that universe is, and it's this is an exciting time these days because it's it's expanding a lot now and in my opinion, expanding it a lot of the right ways to kind of help, you know, strengthen and make it a bigger, more wonderful place to, to, to see films and stories in. So, yeah. Good to be a fan again. Mm-hmm. Um, with, I think something that has followed uh, your career through 
um, computer games, you worked on the Goofy movie, you worked mm. uh, everywhere. But something that has followed your your work and maybe um, defines you as an artist is Grickle. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a comic work which has become animated. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about Grickle. Sure. Um, Grickle, <laughs> just the word came from a nickname. My father would come up with multiple nicknames for me and my sister, and Grickle was the one, for whatever reason, that sort of hung on me the longest. Um, and it was during the time, actually, at LucasArts, where things shifted into 3D software, and basically, and basically the amount of drawing that I was doing daily just really diminished. And I really found I missed drawing, and I needed a reason to draw beyond just sketching doodles. And I'd always have always done comic strips and comic books on my own throughout the years. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just start trying to create my own little short stories. And I just did that on the side to a point where I had a stack of stories and I thought, okay, well, maybe I can put these together in a booklet. And then I was like, what am I going to call this? Because I really didn't have any big theme at the beginning of it to connect all these different little pieces that just... It was just whatever I naturally wanted to write and draw about. And so Gripple became the title for that. And pretty soon after that, the booklets got picked up by a small comic independent label. And uh, it's just kind of grown from there. And I still, to this day, I'm doing comics on the side. And I really love the sort of sweet spot I feel like I'm in right now, career-wise, where I'm, you know... Very happy at Leica working within the story department. I get to work in a team environment, work on really big projects. But I also now have the ability, and when I find the time and can get to it, the ability and, and space to do solo projects that are just me. Because comics really allow for that. Animation, typically, you know, you need to work with a big team of people to get, get anything done. Less so now than you used to, but still. Animation just takes forever, and yeah, more animators the better, and you can get things done quicker. But comics really give you that sort of ultimate control over the story and the staging and the pacing and everything. You can kind of get it, and you can get it from start to finish much sooner than you can, say, with an animated feature or, or even a short. Grickle, uh, in the sort of comic tradition, I would say, of of the far side, or it's, it's not one man, although there's the similar... Uh, looking man uh, within the majority of, uh, of of the shorts, it's it's a it's a it's almost like a um, uh, a set look uh, mm-hmm. that, that defines the world. Like as I said, Far Side. I'm rambling. So, Grickle is like Far Side. It's set in its own world uh, and has its own unique look. Yeah. Um, but it gives you a chance to explore and create sketches and sketch moments uh, and, and explore humour. Where where do you get your humour from? Where, what, 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 what's your sort of... What do you like? Uh, you know, you mentioned Farside, and I was obsessed with the Farside as a kid. I mean, that was, to me, the funniest thing on the planet. And it still holds up. I still, you know, go back to it constantly, and it's like, it's still, for me, as funny as it was back then. Um, so, yeah, the Farside has a lot to do with, I think, the angle and the sort of perspective of humor I have. It was also, um, I guess, just maybe a sign of the times, but I, Stephen King 
I just I absolutely loved Stephen King books at that time, and I just read everything he wrote, and I was obsessed with horror. And I look back now and sort of how the Grickle stuff has kind of gelled and evolved. And if I was to try to describe what I do, not that it's anywhere near the neighborhood of genius of either of those two guys, but it is like a bizarre cartoonish blend of Stephen King meets Gary Larson, <laughs> if, if that sounds like an apt description. But it's taken me a long time to realize that. I mean, it's funny how I just, I'm not the best at sort of analyzing my own work. I just, I've always strived for the Grickle stuff to feel like a natural extension of what I do. Um, and like you said, it's, it's, it's gotten to a point, I feel like, where design-wise, a lot of decisions and shortcuts and refinements are kind of pretty natural for me now. I, I don't have to struggle too much in terms of how do I design this character or that room or this car. I can kind of... I, feel like I've touched enough objects now with the way I draw that there's a certain cohesive naturalness to it, which then allows me again, yeah, to focus more on, okay, what kind of concepts here that I can really try to portray or, and, and show. How did you come to work at Leica? Grickle. Through Grickle. Really, because uh, before I left Toronto, before I worked at LucasArts, I got this amazing gig in my career to work for Chuck Jones. Just out of the blue, they were in Toronto uh, looking for story artists to help them uh, create the theater shorts. They wanted to try to revive theater, cartoon theater shorts. And so got this amazing job where I got to completely make my own original Porky and Daffy shorts. I got to go down to LA for a week and actually sit at a table with Chuck Jones and a bunch of other artists and work out all the gags and everything and I loved it and I, that was the moment where I thought okay if I stay in the animation industry I think storyboarding is where I should be at this just feels like the most fun and the most natural spot for me but as luck would have it I then a few months later got hired at LucasArts because I was still mostly an animator and then I spent a decade or more working in video games and that didn't really help me generate a storyboard portfolio. So it was the Grickle comics that I was doing on the side that kind of worked as my portfolio. So when I heard that Leica was starting up in Portland um, and that Henry Selleck was looking for story artists, uh, I had enough friends in the animation industry that knew that I did the Grickle comics. And I think they sort of put the word to Leica and to, to Henry that this Grickle guy was interested in boarding his for his film and yeah I guess Henry liked the the comics enough and it showed enough promise in terms of storyboarding that uh, that kind of landed me the job Excellent. but I still didn't know what I was doing when I first showed up I had no idea exactly what the expectation was for a feature story artist <laughs> well, you seem to have done alright it seems to have worked out so far nobody, yeah. nobody's figured it out yet <laughs> <laughs> this is the big expose interview it's just, it's, the secret's out. Um, so you yeah, worked on Coraline uh, in the storyboard department. Was it the same for Paranorman as yeah. well? Yeah. And then uh, bumped up as director for Box Trolls. Yeah, that was a big, unexpected bump up. Um, because I started out as head of story on the Box Trolls. And at a certain point in the production, I mean, we really, as a studio, we, Alan Snow's book's great. I mean, Here Be Monsters is hilarious, and Alan's drawings are amazing. 
But adapting that into a 90-minute feature was really proving to be really tough, and we went through a lot of different iterations. And I mean, part of the appeal of Alan's book is like every page you turn introduces new characters in a new environment, and it was, I mean, it's part of its charm, but the, the pace of that quantity of ideas, just we couldn't sustain that to make a 90-minute feature of any kind. So anyway, there was a lot of back and forth, up and down, different writers, different changes, and everything was always kind of turbulent. And Tony Stocky was sort of a guy that had come sort of from outside of the Leica sphere at that time because he'd come from Sony Pictures, he co-directed on Open Season. And so I think Travis kind of got the idea that it would be smart for them to sort of pair him up with kind of a known quantity within the studio, which I guess, you know, I sort of filled that role because I was already head of story on it, so I was pretty intimate with the project as it was. And I think Travis just thought, okay, this is this guy looks like he could probably fill the shoes of a director. And so, uh, so yeah, I suddenly found myself paired up with Tony. And it was a wild, wild ride. Uh, and I'm really glad for the experience, but uh, I'm also glad that the film just finished and that we all survived it. Because, yeah, it was, it was much more intense than I thought. One of the standout parts of the film is... I would say the way that the camera moves. Mm. Did you uh, do the storyboards thinking, oh, this is somebody else's problem, then become director and have to... (laughs) (laughs) Is that how how it worked? No, you know, I think a lot of the camera movement in that film, the credit has to go to Tony. That was something that he wanted to bring to it, and I think partly maybe because of the fact that he had that CG movie background and he didn't have a ton of experience in stop motion he thought, this is the thing I could try to bring to this. And it was a struggle, and it was hard to do. And thankfully, we were in great hands with John Ashley, who was our DP on it, because he was totally on board with Tony, of trying to figure out ways, how do we keep this camera a little more active. And <clears throat> I feel like, quantity-wise, uh, Coraline was pretty much non-existent. On Paranorman, things started... the. Uh, wasn't like officially a layout department, but there was Chris Peterson and a bunch of folks that were beginning to use Maya to try to map out some camera movement before we went to the stages, just to try to give a better heads up, you know, integrate that into the story reels and just know as much information going in as possible. Because stop motion tends to be just really clever people sitting on a set and scratching their heads and doing triage right there and figuring it out and you know it can turn out beautiful but there's a lot of <laughs> scary unknowns anyway that movement paired with John and, and Tony really pushing on it the layout department kind of grew for the box trolls and those guys not every shot but almost every shot I think in the film was sort of pre-visualized for the first time and, and a lot of camera movement was able to sort of get integrated up front so that when it went out to stages, they already knew that there was going to be just a little shift this way or a little movement that way. And yeah, it does, it feels different for it, for sure. With the shots in the box trolls being so carefully planned, the faces are already uh, the pre-anim- pre-animated. Uh, the camera move has to be programmed into a camera rig. Mm-hmm. Uh, the direction of the puppets... I would presume to a certain extent, uh, especially if a character is interacting with their own face, as you say, if, if they're scratching yeah. their nose or something like that. 
um, has to be implemented. How much scope is there for the animator to uh, add performance <laughs> and express themselves? Is it restrictive, as, it, as I've just made it sound, or, or, no. or did you get surprised throughout? You're always surprised. I, you know, you know, no matter how much pre-planning goes into it, again, there's just no way to truly know what that result's going to be once it gets going on stage. Um, I mean, everybody does their absolute best to predict the result and control it, but there's a little bit of looseness that you kind of need because you can't... It's a crazy process of, like, there's so much planning to make sure nothing goes wrong, but the more planning that gets layered on, the, the more likely it is to lose that little spark of naturalness that you need to have anything be believable on screen. If it gets too constructed, the life just kind of drains out of it. And so you're always doing that dance of like making sure you've covered every option, but somehow keep that shot feeling fresh and natural. And that's what the animators truly have to bring to it is they keep that stuff fresh when they do that performance. And so, and the animators are all different personalities. And so you learn, I guess, as a director, how to sort of hopefully direct each individual the best for them and for you to get the information across but some animators you just ultimately know they're going to put a little more and surprise you in mostly good ways and other animators are pretty they take every word very serious and they will follow it to a T so yeah it's just that trick of keeping it feeling loose but yet knowing that everything's been thought out um, did you work on the story department for Kubo then? Is that week after after Box Trolls? Not really. It was the weirdest thing for me because you know I've been at Leica since Coraline. I feel like I've been a decent uh, participant in each of the films up till then. And again, the director role, I didn't, I did not know how much was involved in terms of marketing and post everything. And so. By the time I was actually back in the studio on a regular basis, sitting in a seat, ready to draw stuff for people, Kubo was done, storyboarding-wise. It was, it was already wrapped up. I helped out on commercials, marketing for it, because there was that stuff to do, but yeah. And so it was weird. When I saw the friends and family screening of Kubo, it was kind of a treat in a, a strange way, because it was, like, it was like watching a movie from another studio for me, because I really hadn't participated in that one. A, a nice treat after the, the slog of uh, yeah, doing the, the box trolls. Yeah, I didn't have to feel any of the pain of this one and just enjoy the end result. <laughs> yeah, you find yourself laughing at the uh, because it seems that every single <clears throat> it does seem that every single uh, Leica shot advances stop motion in some way, from rapid prototyping in, in Coraline to adding the color in Paranorman, the camera work in box trolls, and now. How tall were some of the puppets oh, in Kubo? And yeah. uh, it's, I mean, such such an advance. I mean, rightly so, it was nominated for uh, an Academy Award. No, it's fantastic to see it get all the recognition it got. Yeah. Um, are there people at, at uh, like uh, what's next? The, wondering what's next. Always. What crazy ideas? Uh, yeah, always. I mean, each production, you're right, is, is does its best to find some way to keep evolving the medium and keep finding ways to, to enhance and change and but yeah at a certain point like when I remember getting uh, sneaking out to the set to look at uh, I've forgotten the character's name but Odokoro I think is the, the large skeleton yeah. guy and <laughs> just like pretty much just involuntarily laughed out loud when I saw how truly big he was because <laughs> I was like yeah I don't think we'll get any 
we can't go bigger now. This is this is must this has got to be the end in terms of biggest puppet ever. Yeah. Because uh, up to that point, yeah, I think um, you know we had had a lot of marketing surrounding uh, Snatcher's vehicle, the big square, you know, metal box at the end. It, that was that was like almost five feet tall, so that was a big deal at that point. And then I walk in and see the skeleton that's like. I don't know, 12 feet? I don't know how big he was. He was just massive. He looked like the most uh, amazing heavy metal album cover you could imagine like, when he walked <laughs> into the set. Like, that's what I thought right away. I was like, oh my gosh, my like, 12-year-old self would have freaked out over this. This is so cool. <laughs> it's like an Iron Maiden cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, Eddie, come, come to life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know where they'll go. with. I mean, each project at like a, artistically... It's pretty different. I mean, thematically and artistically, they change up because, like, just for example, like the box trolls was so detail heavy and ornate. Everything had extra amounts of just little doodly designs, and everything was just packed with details, much as we could put into it. And I think the art department really breathed a sigh of relief for Kubo because it was a whole different set of problems and an amazing, like, thing of huge swaths of color and flats and things. It was just other end, other end of the spectrum from from uh, box trolls, and I think for the art department it's great. And so each film has kind of been able to provide that for the for the teams, mm-hmm. gives them a whole bunch of new headaches to have to solve. But but they're new headaches, they're new things to try to figure out. And so those different looks usually are the things that end up ultimately driving. Okay, where where's the next technical technical achievement in this one? Because what's this story about? What makes sense to try to push? that will benefit this story. And so it's, it's kind of hard to predict like which one, what thing we'll push next. But I do feel like we can't get any bigger. Yeah. Otherwise you're going to have cranes out there working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Are there pots boiling at the moment in, at like uh, ideas for features and oh, yeah. uh, short, well, well, ideas for features and uh, stuff on, on the go? Oh yeah, tons. Um, and that's, honestly, that's, for me, that's, what I've been mostly working on since coming back to Story Department is I've been, <laughs> after f- five, five years of pretty much just the box trolls for me, it's been pretty great to come into work and I, my, my tasks change monthly, every couple of weeks. I've been just sort of bouncing around, hopping around on things boarding out this and boarding out that just to try to elevate different things that are in development that may see the light of day may not but it's kind of fun to just get those nice little snippets and keep you know playing with different projects fantastic I'm sure that's reassuring for people to hear because obviously we've had a personal conversation about this because there's rumours going around about as there ever, ever is about what's happening with Travis and the Bumblebee movie, and yeah. which 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 is a weird out of left field field thing, but I'm sure uh, people will be comforted to know that Leica is has pots on the boil, has feature films in development, yeah. and things are working. Yeah, there's plenty going on, so I maybe we'll just have a little less Travis time, depending on how he's where he's going with what he's doing. But uh, it sure seems like yeah, nothing's changing in terms of fundamental direction for Leica. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, uh, Graham Annabelle, thank you very much for talking to me today. The, uh, that's the awkward question alarm going off in the background. <laughs> it's telling me the interview's done. <laughs> Wonderful stuff there from Graham Annabelle. And as mentioned before, you can see more of his work at patreon.com slash grickle. 
Grickle.com, YouTube.com slash Grickle, on Twitter, at Grickle. You can tell at this point I just like saying Grickle. It's great stuff. Well worth your time. And thanks again to Graham for joining us. Before we sign off, a couple of plugs for the further wanderings of my film Throw. If you're in Spain, you may be able to catch it at the Animacom Fest in Bilbao. It's part of a special screening Crazy Com that'll be just after the main awards ceremony this Saturday, March 18th, 11pm at the BBF Dock. Visit Animacom.com for more on the festival. That's Animacom with a K. The following week, on Friday, March 24th, it'll be playing in Poznan, Poland, in Friday Night Shorts at the Short Waves Festival, another special programme put together by Philip Ilson of the London Short Film Festival, at which the film screened in January. That'll kick off at 10pm at the Kino Rialto. More info on that one at shortwaves.pl. While you're cruising along this newfangled information superhighway, why not give us a follow on Twitter? I'm at Benel Mitchell, Steve is at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson, and Squiggly is at Squiggly. Also, Squiggly Animation on Instagram, Squiggly Magazine on Facebook, and good old reliable Squiggly.com for the main site where all the magic happens. Worth addressing as regards the podcast itself, some people have gotten in touch about issues with downloading episodes. Uh, having looked into it, it seems that our main host, SoundCloud.com, now requires users to be registered to download tracks. Aboo. However, it is free. Alternatively, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and never miss an episode. So there's really no excuse. We'll see you next time for episode 70. Until then, happy animating. Happy animating.